I always go back to the somatic experience of climbing. And uh, some of my exercises for fear specifically is to visualize your fear as a tangible thing. For me, when I first felt fear, I imagined it as this ball of light in my chest. And whenever I got really scared, it would get super bright and big and like I couldn't see anything and I couldn't think. And so it's like, okay, I'm going to, again, take this big, deep breath. And as I would breathe out, that ball would get smaller and it would stay contained right in my chest. And I wouldn't ever wish my fear away because I know that my fear is a necessary part of my survival. Uh, But being able to contain it allowed me to take back some of that control. Climber Nina Williams is known for her highball bouldering career. Highballing is somewhere between bouldering and free soloing. Climbers scale rocks 20 to 50 feet tall, sometimes even taller, without a rope. Nina was the first woman to climb a number of extremely challenging routes around the world, from Bishop, California to Rockland, South Africa. She's climbed upwards of V13, which is a very high rating of pro-level bouldering. In her sport, Nina deals with fear and failure regularly. She's had to learn to manage both in a way that allows her to be safe, but still push herself to her limits. I'm Shelby Stanger, and this is Wild Ideas Worth Living, an REI Co-op Studios production. Nina Williams grew up in New England, where she participated in all kinds of sports. When she was on a family vacation at 12 years old, Nina climbed one of those man-made climbing walls at a ski resort. Then she climbed it again. And again, she couldn't get enough. And when she got home from that trip, she joined a climbing team and started competing. Nina Williams, welcome to Wild Ideas Worth Living. Thanks for having me on, Shelby. I'm really happy to be here. When you rock climbed in high school, what kind of rock climbing did you do? It sounds like you did it all. So high school um, and all throughout my early 20s, I mean, even into now, I have primarily bouldered. So bouldering is when you climb uh, without any ropes, but you're not climbing very high up. Um, I would do this outdoors. And again, I was competing as well. So I would uh, do a lot of private and um, national level competitions around the country. And then uh, as I got older, I kept competing, but outdoor climbing definitely took a big front seat. How old were you when you started high bouldering? I was probably about 15 or 16, 16, 17. Okay, so taking me chronologically, you competed through high school, college you went to UC Boulder? Um, Actually, college is a funny story. I uh, went to University of Rhode Island for just three semesters, but I didn't know what I wanted to do, and I felt like I was wasting money. So I dropped out and pursued climbing full-time. And I remember... In that moment of dropping out, I was like, you know what? I've never been a great student anyways. I was always like kind of mediocre in high school and I'm just not smart enough for higher education. And it doesn't make sense for me to try and like push through school. I was miserable. Um, But I I felt a lot of guilt and shame in dropping out because at the time, like everyone else, you know, was graduating or getting on with their lives. And I felt like I had taken a huge step back. Uh, But I I just knew that I wanted to climb. I, I I didn't know what I wanted to do in life, but I was like, I just want to go out to Colorado and rock climb. Uh, so that's what I did. Uh, but fast forward a little bit, I did return to school um, in t- 2019 
uh, and I attended, yeah, UC Boulder, um, studied communication and leadership management and graduated in, in 2021. You know, life isn't linear. And I imagine that rock climbing has taught you a lot about that. So this decision that you made when you were younger, I'm guessing like 19, 20, to, to get drop out yeah. of school? Mm-hmm, 19. That's a really pivotal time in most people's life. So quitting school when society expects you to like go to high school, go to college, and you're going to go become a rock climber was a huge decision. How did you come to that decision? What did you learn from that? I just remember it was midterms of my third semester at URI, and I was curled up on my dorm bed in the fetal position and I hadn't studied for any of my exams and I was like really failing a lot of my classes. <laughs> and I was just like, I was like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> like I, 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 it was that I didn't want to. And something I've learned about myself is like, there are moments where I cannot force myself to do something that I don't want to do. And it has taken me places, again, both good and bad. But that was a moment where I was like, I I don't want this. Like, I don't know what else, but I know that I do not want this. And this is an, and a concept, you know, it's certainly not original to me, but like, it's, it, it's valuable to know what you want. And it's just as valuable to know what you don't want. And those are two very distinct things, even though they kind of sound the same. But um, I knew that I didn't want to be in school. Nina had to fight that voice in her head that told her leaving college was a mistake. She was only 19 years old, and it was a big decision. Luckily, back in high school, Nina had had a formative experience in the competitive climbing circuit. It taught her how to work through feelings of self-doubt and failure. Rock climbing has taught me a lot about failure, and I've only done it a few times. What has rock climbing taught you about failure? When I first started climbing um, and I first started getting into competition, I was one of two girls on my climbing team, um, but everyone else was a boy and my coaches were male and climbing was a very male-dominated sport at the time. And so I put a lot of pressure on myself to succeed and to be the best and really to stand out. And I, I wanted other people to see me as a good climber and to think that I could be, you know, something great. Uh, but I didn't believe that in myself. So when I got into competition, um, a year went by and I had an opportunity to go to my first national competition. And um, during the regional kind of pre-qualification comp, I ended up cheating. Um, essentially, you know, you have back in the day, you would have three hours to climb your top five hardest climbs, and you would have to have a judge or a peer sign off on the climb that you did to say that they saw it. And so I forged some signatures on climbs that I didn't send uh, in the gym. And so I went off to nationals and didn't cheat at nationals because of the format. Um, I placed fourth. uh, So I got a spot on the climbing team, I got a jacket and a trophy and all this stuff. And I I remember thinking, wow, this is like the peak. This this is my peak experience. Uh, This is like the best I'll ever be in climbing. And so I, you know, went back home, got a lot of external validation and, you know, encouragement. But then, of course, that feeling didn't last. And so I continued to cheat in a few more competitions after that. Uh, And I eventually got caught. 
And I was put through the ringer, rightly so, right? But my climbing federation um, made an example out of me. They had me uh, apologize in person to my competitors and my coaches and my gym community. I had to write letters and read it out loud. Um, They also banned me from the upcoming climbing season, but I had to still go and volunteer. And then I had to give back my trophy and my uh, lost my place on the climbing team. And uh, it was it was such it was the hardest moment of my young person life where I questioned myself, like, why am I doing this? Like, do I actually love climbing and who am I climbing for? Because I feel like the biggest failure because I wanted to succeed, but I didn't want to put in the work. And I, it was like, why do I want this success? And what does this success really mean? Um, and at the end of the day, I did a lot of hard thinking, had a lot of hard conversations. And I was like, you know what? I, I love climbing regardless of how I have failed myself and my community in this moment. Like I still love the movement and the sport and that sensation it gives me. Um, so I stuck with it and, uh, I, you know, kept competing, kept climbing outside and realized that was the most important question to ask is like, why, why am I doing this? And as long as that answer for me is, you know, motivating for myself and coming from a place of internal intent, like not externally based, not based on what other people think, but what I feel about myself, then it makes any failure worth it. Because as long as I am doing something to progress and move forward, like any failure is just is just part of that progress, even though it feels like regression. You know, you have to fail a lot in order to succeed. And I tried to shortcut that and it didn't work. Uh, And I learned a very, very hard lesson from that. So it's like I embrace all of the failures now because otherwise I'm robbing myself of uh, growth and learning. When Nina got up the courage to leave college, she kept some of the lessons from this experience in the back of her mind. School didn't feel like the right thing for her at age 19, but climbing did. Nina decided to move to Colorado and pursue the sport full time. She took up jobs coaching kids at a local climbing gym and quickly gained a couple of small partnership deals. During her personal training, Nina honed in on highball bouldering and started to excel. She became an expert in climbing rocks as tall as four-story buildings without ropes, and the industry took notice. Today, Nina is a professional highballer who is sponsored by prestigious brands like The North Face and Scarpa. I want to talk a little bit more about high ball bouldering. High bouldering is essentially climbing really high boulders, like over maybe 10 feet, 15 feet. Yeah, they are somewhere in the 20 to 30, um, up to 50 foot range. The tallest high ball that I've done is uh, about 50 feet. So you're climbing without ropes. Yeah, without ropes. And uh, most of climbing, most all of standard climbing is actually very safe. And then highball bouldering is not as safe because you you introduce a bit more risk when you don't have a rope and you still go high off the ground. What does it look like to train for highball bouldering? What does it look like to train for highball bouldering? Um, Lots of falling, (laughs) lots of falling practice. But for me, 
a lot of my highballs, well, the majority of my super tall highballs have been done on a rope first. And um, there's a couple ethics in highball bouldering. One ethic is the ground up ethic where you start at the ground and you go up and you don't know what's coming and you're just getting a little higher and a little higher and you keep falling. Um, and then the other ethic is putting a rope down first and rehearsing the moves and knowing what's going to happen and then starting from the bottom and doing the climb. And for me, the experience of highball bouldering has always been about presence in the moment and control and uh, again, knowing that I am in a dangerous position, but also trusting in myself and knowing that I'm safe. So rehearsing the moves ahead of time helps me visualize and get into that moment of fear. Because when I'm on a rope, I actually picture myself climbing it without a rope. And I let all of the fear sensations move through me. And I, I notice where the fear is happening. Like, is it like a tightness in my chest? Or are my legs shaking? Maybe my hands are really sweaty. Uh, my eyes are darting all over the place. And I just let my body feel those emotions and those fears. And then I just sit with it and I think, okay, like this is okay. I can feel that fear and acknowledge it, but I don't have to let it dictate my actions or what I do next. I've heard you talk about falling like a cat, which just sounds so cool. How did you learn to do that? So when I was living back in New England, I was really inspired by a climb called Speed of Life, which is in Farley, Massachusetts. And um, it's it's got a really steep angle like this. And there are these like tiered boulder uh, like landings underneath it. And it creates this sort of chimney slanted thing like this. And so when you climb up uh, and you fall, you have to angle your body. You either have to jump backwards onto a flat part or you have to like slide down this weird chute. And I would just learn to immediately look down at my wherever my feet were going. So a big thing about falling is like, oh, don't look down. You you always want to look down because if you don't look down, you can't see where you're going. So whenever I fall, I immediately find a spot on the ground to aim for. And then over time, I learned to kind of like, like let out a bunch of my breath as I fell to try and avoid getting all tense and tight. Because if you fall and you're like very tight, you can injure yourself more. Um, so I started doing that on the climb speed of life. But then when I went out to California, uh, where the, the climbs were much taller in the like 30 to 40, 50 foot range, um, I would fall and fall just straight down. And again, just try and relax my body as much as possible. If you go to her Instagram, you can see videos of Nina methodically moving up giant boulders. Many of the holds she uses are tiny, with just enough surface for her to place her toe or grip with her fingertips. There are moments when it looks like she's definitely about to fall, but she busts out a dynamic move, eking her way higher. When we come back, Nina tells me some stories about a couple of the scarier climbs she's done and talks about the mindfulness practices that help her manage fear. If you're looking to go on more adventures this year, I have something you're gonna love. Did you know that REI offers wholly immersive outdoor experiences where they manage all of the details? I'm talking bucket list vacations, 
like camping in Bryce Canyon or snowshoeing through Lake Tahoe. They'll even take you cycling through Alaska. REI organizes all of the accommodations and works with world-class guides to plan your outdoor adventure and make sure you're doing it safely. What I love most is that these trips cater to beginners and experts and are suitable for various groups, including families, women, and those under 35. That means that there's an adventure for everyone. With more than 100 trips from coast to coast, REI is sure to have a trip that will get you outside, learn new skills, and meet new friends for future adventures. And there's a bonus if you're an REI co-op member. Members save an average of $400 on each trip they book and get a bunch of other benefits. If you're not a member yet, we'll share a link in the show notes so you can join today. Visit rei.com adventures to find the itinerary for you. That's rei.com adventures. Professional climber Nina Williams has been scaling rock walls since she was a preteen. She's had legendary sends on some of the world's most difficult climbs. Nina attributes a huge part of her success to her ability to fall. For years, she practiced how to fall like a cat, distributing her weight evenly amongst her limbs and relaxing her body as much as possible. Even with this unique skill, Nina sometimes finds herself in hairy situations. Some of her favorite highball memories are moments when she's felt fear, but has been able to overcome it. Let's talk about some of your favorite highball routes that you've climbed. Do you have any stories? Let's see. Um, one of my very first highballs out in Bishop, California, is a climb called Footprints. And um, I had climbed the top part of it just once on a rope. Um, and then I didn't really expect to get through the bottom part of the climb because that's where the, the most difficulty is. And so the next day I went back and I had a bunch of pads and I was just working the bottom moves again, not expecting myself to get through, but lo and behold, I suddenly found myself in the upper section of this climb. And I remember thinking, well, okay, I've done this once before and it, you know, the top half of this climb isn't nearly as difficult as the bottom half. So I was like, I know that I have the physical capability to do this. So let's just go. So I'm climbing, 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 and I get to about two thirds of the way up this boulder, which is about 45, 40, 45 feet tall. And I remember uh, looking down and having to put my foot on a little foothold that when I was climbing on a rope, I didn't think twice, but I looked at this small foot and it looked a lot smaller and a lot greasier and more insecure than I remembered it. And I froze and I I guess I don't actually remember what I was thinking, but I remember that feeling in my body of just like, I didn't move. <laughs> and um, a few seconds passed by that felt like forever. But then I remember thinking, having an actual thought of like, this is a serious situation. <laughs> like you cannot stay here. Um, and I knew like my body started getting really scared, but my mind recognized that. And it said, okay, if you were two feet off the ground right now, you wouldn't think twice about this. And so just picture that you're two feet off the ground. And so it's like my mind kind of kicked my body into gear. And then I put my foot on that foothold and I pressed and I finished up the top of the climb. And I remember, you know, getting to the top 
and having this release, just like my body was kind of shaking a little bit. And I was like, uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't really want to feel like this again. <laughs> so, oh, have you had any other sketchy situations like that? I've had a few. Yeah, I, I've had a few. Um, well, I'll get into a story that I haven't told very often. And uh, it's not a highballing story. It's a it's a free soloing story. Free soloing is when you climb uh, really big formations with no rope. All you have are your climbing shoes and your chalk. And I've been hesitant to share this story because um, the concept of free soloing is a difficult one for me because while I, I do free solo, I don't free solo a whole lot. Um, and I think free soloing is a very personal decision. Also because uh, I, free soloing is not something I want to encourage, but I know that people free solo anyways. And so it's kind of like, how do you talk about free soloing without talking about free soloing? So free soloing for me has been very personal, um, also a very perfect and just beautiful way for me to be present with myself because of the extreme high risk. Anyways, I a couple of years ago, I had this idea to do a local challenge here in Boulder, Colorado, um, called the Longs Peak Triathlon. And you start in Boulder and you bike 40 miles up to Longs Peak Trailhead. And then you run about five miles to the base of the diamond, which is like a 900 foot sheer face on Long's Peak. You climb a route called the casual route, and then you run seven miles back down to the trailhead, and then you bike 40 miles back down to Boulder. So I decided that I wanted to do the Long's Peak triathlon just on my own. And uh, if I was like, well, if I'm going to do it on my own, then I should probably make sure that I can solo the diamond. Um, so two summers ago, I went and soloed the diamond, um, made sure that I could do it. I was like, oh, cool. The climbing's actually pretty casual in terms of difficulty. Um, and then the second time I went, I tried to find a partner, but uh, for a variety of reasons, nobody wanted to go climb the casual route. And so I just went by myself and I thought, well, it's a really nice day. The weather window is here. Um, I'm going to just feel it out. And if anything feels off, you know, I'm not going to do it. But as it happens, it was a perfect day. And I started up and I just remember feeling so light and free. I was having fun. And um, suddenly I went through some moves that felt a little harder than I remembered. And I was like, huh, well, okay, you know, I know I'm supposed to take a left at table ledge and, you know, there's this feature above me. And I think if I just go around this feature, you know, table ledge will be right there. Um, and so I'm climbing up and I go through some harder moves and I'm like, man, I really don't remember this part of the climb. Um, and I looked down and the place that I was supposed to turn was about like 30 or 40 feet down into my left. And so I was in unknown terrain and so and you're how many feet in the air probably 800 seven or eight hundred feet wow that's scary uh yeah it was it was a moment where I remember thinking okay 
everything that I have experienced in highball climbing, um, all of the mental practices, all of the breath work that I've done, it's has kind of all led up to this moment. And I need to decide if I want to down climb first or if I want to keep going. And so in that moment, I was like, well, I don't want to down climb because I just didn't feel comfortable doing that. And I thought about the rest of it and I was like, well, I'm pretty close to the summit. I know that there's no like super hard climbing up here and I can see like a fairly obvious way. So I'm just going to keep going uh, with the knowledge that if I have to down climb, I will. But from here on out, I'm going to keep going to the summit. So uh, kept going. Use again all of those tactics that I had developed over the years, the the mantras, the breath works, just like being in my body, being very present, um, keeping calm. And I got to the top, you know, with uh, with moments of not fear. Like I, I, I am totally honest in saying that I wasn't ever scared in that time, but I was nervous. I remember topping out. And um, getting that that visceral automatic feeling that I had in that early experience on Footprints back in Bishop of like my body was kind of shaking and I was processing what had just happened. And I remember being proud of myself and I also had a lot of shame because I got lost on the climb. Um, I didn't put in the amount of time that I should have on the route to get to know it. Um, And it taught me a really big lesson in that, for me, it's not the difficulty of the climb. It's actually the awareness and knowledge of what it means to be in the big mountains and to, to actually pay attention to your surroundings. Rock climbing can be a risky sport, especially when there are no ropes. And while she does her best to avoid them, Nina does encounter life and death situations. She takes these moments seriously. And in addition to training physically, Nina has worked really hard to train her mind. She's done a lot of research and practice to recognize fear, learn how it manifests in her body, and move through it. The way you told your story, very thoughtful. And I can tell you think a lot about mindset and you have to. So what what do you use? Like, what are these techniques? Like, can you give me some of your tricks, like on a wall? Sure. So um, I, I always go back to the somatic experience of climbing. So whenever you can put yourself into your body and think, well, I say think, but really feel where the tension is. Are you, hold, you know, in your shoulders, um, in your chest, in your arms, in your legs? So uh, one thing that Again, not original to me. I learned it from Arno Ilner, who um, is the author of The Rock Warrior's Way. He talks about doing a body scan. So especially if you're roped climbing or even bouldering and you feel yourself getting scared, you find a point right in front of your eyes and you kind of relax your your eyeballs first and you try and relax your whole face. You're not like looking around and darting your eyes around or moving your body. You're just like gazing really softly ahead of you. And you take like a deep, big, deep breath and you just kind of push some of that tension and weight down. So you start relaxing into your chest. You like sag your body into your feet. You want to put more weight into your hips, down into your legs, um, straighten your arms. And 
you just take a second to not think about what you're going to do next or what you messed up beforehand. You're just there with yourself. And learning about this body scan from Arno was like the start of me realizing how important it is to just be with your body. And uh, some of my exercises for fear specifically is to visualize your fear as a tangible thing. You know, imagine it as an object uh, or you can give it a name. You can picture it as a little gremlin on your shoulder or something. But for me, my when I first felt fear, I imagined it as this ball of light in my chest. And whenever I got really scared, it would get super bright and big and like I couldn't see anything and I couldn't think. And so when I imagined my fear as this actual circular ball, it's like, okay, I'm going to, again, take this big, deep breath all the way in the chest, breathe out. And as I would breathe out, that ball would get smaller and it would stay contained right in my chest. And I wouldn't ever wish my fear away because I know that my fear is a necessary part of my survival and it's a part of me. Uh, But being able to minimize it and and feel like I could contain it um, allowed me to take back some of that control of the fear. And in controlling the fear, I say control a lot as if, you know, it's actually something that I can manipulate. But the reality is like when you can, when you feel like you can control something, you actually release its control over you. And so in that releasing, I just accept, you know, the fears, how it manifests in my body. And I say, okay, I'm, I'm still going to try hard and I'm still going to push through. While Nina encounters risk more than the average person, there are definitely lessons here for anyone who feels doubt or fear. I love how she visualizes fear in order to minimize and contain it. Nina Williams, thank you so much for coming on the show. You were such a joy to talk to, and I could listen to you tell climbing stories all day long. If you want to follow Nina Williams and see what she's up to, check out her Instagram, at Shaninigans. That's S-H-E-N-E. E-E-N-A-G-I-N-S, Shaninigans. Shout out to Ben at the Wilderness Coworking Space in Minneapolis, Minnesota for recommending that we bring Nina on the show. Wild Ideas Worth Living is part of the REI Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, Shelby Stanger, produced by Annie Fassler, Sylvia Thomas, and Sam Pierce-Nitzberg of Puddle Creative. Our senior producers are Jenny Barber and Hannah Boyd. Our executive producers are Paolo Motola and Joe Crosby. As always, we love it when you follow the show, take time to write a review wherever you listen, and remember, some of the best adventures happen when you follow your wildest ideas.